Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 93 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 93, we are going to actually spend pretty much the entire uh, episode talking about uh, things to do in practice in terms of optimizing your practice time in terms of both district prep and, say, internationals or invitational interdistrict sort of meets like Great West, uh, that sort of prep. We're going to be talking about syllable prep, cadence of prep. Uh, the concept of peaking and all sorts of things surrounding that. And a lot of this comes from uh, Scott's quizzer brain from long ago that and sort of ideas that he has uh, that he's going to be sharing with us. And I'm going to be attempting to pretend to play the devil's advocate, uh, finding things to poke at with his theories to kind of spur on additional discussion and so forth. But before we get into that, uh, a quick internationals update. So uh, the dates for the in-person internationals have been announced, and I actually don't have them immediately readily available, so I can't quote them to you, but I think we quoted them in episode 92. They are the same. The dates, however, for the virtual uh, internationals, so that was going to be like a a couple of weeks, couple three weeks prior, I think it was in late June, that those uh, the dates that were announced uh, last week or the week before, uh, those dates are changing. Um, so the online date is going to be just a little bit different. I don't know exactly when it will probably get pushed into July, maybe the first weekend in July, but maybe the second weekend. I'm not really sure. We'll we'll just kind of see how things play out there, but. Um, that being said, uh, check out, uh, let's see, I guess you could probably hang out on the, the Slack forums or the CMA uh, Alliance Bible Quizzing website for news and updates as things progress or pester your district coordinator uh, because the district coordinators ought to know these things uh, as we are rapidly barreling through May toward our internationals events and so forth. All right. So with that all said and done, uh, let's talk about things to do in practice. So Scott, what are your thoughts about things to do in practice? So let's see here. I coached or assistant coached three years, I believe consecutively. Um, and so this is from my experience doing that. But one of the main things that I kind of realized is you can't make your quizzers study that is not it's it's both not something that you are able to do but let's say hypothetically you were able to do that i don't know that it would work out great um no one really likes to be forced to do something if they don't want to um and so i always tried to first like frame internationals as as a five person team what is your like top aspiration and then are you willing to do the collective work to give yourself the best chance to get there so i kind of always started from that that starting point. And then once we got into practices, um, I wasn't there to like, I didn't want to spend the time having people quote and then have me say like, this isn't good enough or it is good enough. It just didn't seem like a very efficient use of my time because at the end of the day, I would kind of just be almost like, if I'm saying it's not good enough, then it's like this weird thing of you, you should work more on the material. I don't know. And so I always just found it was easiest to do quizzes and let that kind of expose where your quizzers are at. And so I would give them feedback as the quizzes went on that was really a proxy for how well do you know the material. Um, and I kind of let them take it from there. So it could be they jump on um, 
I'm looking at an interrogative from Matthew 119. Um, he had in mind to what? So it could be they jump on he had and don't get it. And I could look it up in CBQZ and I could say, hey, there are 19 occurrences of that. Um, you did make a good guess and you probably couldn't have done better. But if they jumped on hit, he had in, I would say that's actually a unique phrase. It is a tough one. So I wouldn't expect someone who, even someone who knows the material really well to get this every, to get a question of this difficulty all the time. But if they jumped on, say, public, which is a unique word and did get it, I would say, like, you should know this. And that's kind of a signal to them. And, I, like, I would tailor my feedback to whatever the team's goals were, right? If our goal was we would love to make top nine versus, like, we want to compete for first, then it's a different sort of feedback that you're providing them. But to me, quizzes were the best way to do that because you're actually having to jump on questions and answer them in the moment in pressure with competition. And the other thing that I did is I ran standard quizzes, um, meaning everything about the quiz met the requirements of like question type minimums and maximums, but we didn't have the team dynamic, right? So three teams, if you air, you sit out. And so um, I was fortunate that everyone took it very seriously and they did not say like, oh, if I jump slower, it's easier on everybody. Like they, everyone was grinding to try to get as many questions they could at the edge of the fastest possible speed that they could. But I had no quiz outs or air outs because I wanted it to be very clear to everyone like where they were at. So I'm curious what you think of that, Griffin, because there was one year where we had one of the five quizzers win about 70% of the jumps in practice. And that means that it was less practice for everyone else. But I wanted to it to like not be hidden from the four of them that this quizzer, even though they were very good, was like definitely beyond. And that there would very likely be other quizzers like this at internationals. So thoughts on anything that I've said so far? Um, yeah, so three things real quick. Um, the first is we should, I, I probably should have clarified, we're talking specifically about prep for internationals. So internationals uh, team prep, not so much coach prep at the uh, at the district level for like churches. There's probably some of this that can translate and probably does translate uh, to, you know, teams at the district level. Uh, but we are at least right now, before we exchange the scope, we're talking about, you know, specifically at, at IBQ. In terms of like the no quiz out, no air out, I actually think that's an advantage, right? Um, if you have one particular quizzer or even let's say two quizzers out of your five that are sort of dominating the, the quiz atmosphere, uh, I kind of want to... I mean, if, if it gets so far down the road where I feel like the three that aren't able to jump in and get stuff are struggling and not their, their, their prep is being harmed by not being able to participate. I might do some sort of limited sit out, like you quiz out after, you know, four for the next three questions or something. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not even sure I would do that. But generally speaking, I really like the idea of saying, yeah, no quiz outs, no air outs. As long as you're also not, you know, driving into crazy airing territory, right? Like I want errors to hurt, but I think when you're in practice with five people, the errors generally. So like, like if somebody aired, they would set out maybe like one question, then they're back in, there's no airing out. So they could just that do that over and over, right? Correct. 
Yeah. So th- I think honestly, I would do it that way. So, so in, in that regard, an error hurts, but it doesn't hurt permanently. And you can, you know, you can have seven errors and take up 14 questions. Fine. Um, I might have words with you afterward, but I think that there is benefit to maintaining that higher level of energy where everybody's involved all the way through, you know, 20 questions. So yeah, I would, I, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. And I'm trying to remember, like, it's been a long time since I, coached a team uh let's see gosh well i mean you coached me and i remember working really hard on everything multiple answer so multiple answer references and multiple answers and i feel like i won at least three quarters of the jumps on that type during practice and so i'm guessing you were not having normal quiz outs i mean oh no i didn't yeah so like in in that particular team so that was the internationals team i forget what what year was that that would have been 2004, the yeah, 2003, so, 2004 season. Somewhere in there. So yeah, like like that internationals team, I, I absolutely was, there was no quiz outs, no air outs. You would, if you aired, you'd sit out one question. We ran 20 questions. Uh, I don't even think we did teams. So I don't need, I don't need, I, I don't think there were bonuses or anything. It was just, you know, um, however many individuals, uh, there were two teams, so 10 individuals and uh, although sometimes we would have uh, people, you know, practicing or quoting in a back room or something like that, um, we did do the quoting thing that you said that you wouldn't do because it was a, a you felt it would, would be somewhat of a waste of your time. I think you're right um, in that we did the quoting thing because we had more than one coach. Um, so we could do the quoting thing. And we also had a couple of quizzers who did not have all of the material memorized and we really really wanted to poke them to get them to get more of the material memorized like like it was a noticeable problem where like you and and several other folks i think the majority of the people on the teams had everything memorized to some degree or another but there were you know more than one person didn't and it was very clear that they didn't and we were trying to motivate them to get to you know if not 100 percent strong recall at least be aware enough that you could get an interrogative you know off the off the off a question from that purse because like i just didn't want to leave anything on the table but anyway i'm I'm kind of getting sidetracked but yeah i would absolutely do the um the the no quiz out no air out uh sort of thing where i would i i both commend and disagree with you on a different topic um so I think your idea of starting with a a conversation of like what are your goals, you know, as an in, as individual quizzers, coll- and then also collectively as a team, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? I think that's a that's a great conversation to have because it sets up motivation for the entire experience, both in practice, the prep right before the quizzes, and then the actual you know meet itself. Um, where I am. I don't know if I would disagree. I don't know. I wouldn't call it a disagreement where I would throw a caution flag is with the idea of goal setting as a practice in and of itself. So like I've long been against the idea of setting a goal, not because I think it's a bad idea necessarily to set goals because I, okay, let me rephrase. When you set a goal, Oftentimes what happened, and, and every human is different, right? But typically most humans, when they set a goal, they will either be disenchanted by failing to reach that goal, or they will reach the goal and they will stop, right? What ends up happening, or, or, and, and, and stop is too strong of a word. They will be 
there's there's almost like an inverse gravity relationship to a goal. So like if you've got this goal set in stone at a particular point on a spectrum, what you'll see is data points below that goal will have a sort of a gravitational attraction up toward the goal. But then there is an equal gravitational force above the goal, kind of pulling things down to the goal. Right. And so what will end up happening is like. If you're really close to the goal, you might work a little bit harder to get to the goal. But if you're just a, if you have the capability of being over the goal, you'll actually be limited by the goal and be stuck there. Again, every human is different, right? Everybody's an exception to the rule, but this tends to be the case, right? So I don't like the idea of setting goals in the sense of like, I want to score a certain number of points or I want to get a certain, well, I think a placement is fine because it's sort of extrapolated outcomes rather than something that's directly something that you're you're working toward um so like i wouldn't want to set a goal of like i'm going to memorize a certain number of verses and of course we're talking if we're talking ibq we're not talking about a certain number of verses the goal is everything right um and then beyond that it's sort of a subjective marker of how well do i know the verses and obviously you want that to be as as high as as you can in prep there i'm much more a fan of the defining like a process to say like what is the what is the best way what are we what is a process by which we can achieve the 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 maximum and then as we're going through the process that we've described part of that process should be a self-reflection on the process to say is there a way that we can augment this process to increase the efficiency in the in the vector direction of what we want right so like i'm i'm much more of a process over goals kind of a guy in in that regard does that make sense absolutely and i am too and i think that this was a very specific kind of situation right so Mm. um the reason that i pushed the goal is because i was treating everything as collective you know internationalist is not an individual thing and i found the shared goal to be um, hugely motivational to everyone because um, among the, your five team members, they are not going to have the exact same um, motivation to say win, right? Right. There, there is going to be some range there, um, and but I find that the best way to keep that range both as close as possible but as collectively high is to treat it as a collective thing, right? So maybe one of the five members knows that competitively they are just less driven than the other four, but they love the intellectual pursuit or what else, but it, the competition doesn't drive them to the same extent as the other four. So like IBQ doesn't have this grand extra motivation that it does for the, the rest of their teammates, but they know that, that it does for the rest of their teammates. And so that like provides extra motivation for them. And I found that to be very, very useful because it's like, this is something we're all trying to do together. Um, and it's kind of our collective desire to, you know, do a certain amount of well that drives us and not like the highest person or the lowest person. But then in addition to that, I didn't, so like, let's say hypothetically the team wanted to go, um, win first, I would be very careful with them. I would say like, okay, the main goal is to qualify for top nine because once you make top nine, well, you can't win unless you're in top nine. But once you're in top nine, there is a tremendous amount of luck and variance that happens. And so you could be the best prepared team and not win through no fault of your own. And so I like I was careful that the result, you couldn't guarantee a certain result even if you hit a certain level of preparation, right? Right. But then after that, I said, I, if they're like, we want to try to win first, I'd say, okay, 
we need to make top nine. Um, but these are the kind of things that you can be gauging yourself by. And so, you know, I combed through the material and I figured out what the optimal jump speed for each uh, question type was. And during practices, when they jumped, it wasn't like I wouldn't inform them, did you get this right or not? I would say, like, did you hit the right speed? Because if they aired at too fast a speed, I don't care that they aired. I would say, like, you were at too fast a speed. And if they got it right at too slow a speed, I also didn't care about that. <laughs> I would say, like, you will never win a jump at internationals at this speed. So, like, that was, too, that was you missed our target. Now, if they were hitting the target speed, then you move into, did you know the material well enough to get the target percentage right, which is not 100%, right? We're not computers and no one can prepare to that level. Um, and so like all of that was part of it. And um, they had very constant feedback, both on the precision of their jumping, but then based on only precise jumping, was their material knowledge at a point that would give the team the best chance to win first, right? And so there was never a point at which you were done. Um, and when a, when a specific practice quiz was done, I was not reporting like, oh, well, Jeremy got three and one, which is this percentage accuracy, and Anna got this, and Kaylee got this. I would say like, as a team, we got 45% right. That's not high enough, you know? Um, and I feel like I gave them enough structure that um, they were not con- like they were not continually demotivated because they weren't yet at a certain goal. And they were not um, demotivated because they had already reached a certain goal because there wasn't that like one thing that they were reaching for at any point in the process. Right. Yeah. Well, so like if they're, so you had multiple simultaneous metrics and if they hit a metric, you would, or or a heuristic, you would uh, above a certain bar, like you were saying, 45% accuracy is not good enough, right? There is a, and a hundred percent accuracy is arguably too good because it means you should increase your jump speed. So like there's some number somewhere, right? That's your target. Like what, like 85, what, what's sort of like the target number? So basically based on, all the question types and my question set that I had, I would look at where the inflection points accuracy-wise were in each of the question types and then aim for that optimal speed where it was um, basically the slowest possible speed at the highest possible accuracy, but at a speed where, because of my experience, you would still win enough jumps. And it was usually a very aggressive speed. And so as a result, in practice quizzes, our accuracy goal was 60%. Okay. So. 50-55 was just barely too low, but like, okay. Um, but 60% was always the goal because we, like, because of the incentives at internationals, you know, there are probably three quarters of the teams have no chance at winning first, right? Um, and they probably know that. But if they jumped at the speed at which they would get 60-65% accuracy, they would win zero jumps. And so they know that they just have to jump at the speed that everyone else is jumping at, knowing that their accuracy will probably be 30 to 40%. And because of that, it pulls everybody's overall accuracy down. Um, and so that's kind of like the, the reality in the game that you're playing within. Right. What would happen? So you were targeting 60%. How did that accuracy play out when you moved into the actual you know, competition itself. Did you notice that the accuracy would drop from 60% or rise or stay pretty consistent there? It was usually pretty consistent, but, um, 
it's tougher because in a practice, you do one quiz, one practice quiz, and maybe they get 35% accuracy, and then you immediately just start the next one. But at internationals, you often have an hour before your next one. Right. right <laughs> and yeah. if you have a 35% accuracy quiz, which might have happened just because of variance, it like is really rough mentally to sit with for that hour. Um, and so it's tough because I think over 12 prelims, things do sort themselves out kind of randomness and variance wise, but they don't always. And so, I mean, with the teams that I coached, I almost never called my own timeouts. And most of the time I had very little to say in timeouts because all that I would say is like, once you're at internationals, the amount that we've prepared is the amount that we've prepared. That's like done. Um, All I would do is inform them if they are hitting um, our target speeds or not. Um, and there are times where other teams were going much faster than our target speeds and we're getting them right because they got lucky jumps. And I would just tell the team, I'd be like, they went faster than our target. They got lucky. We can't match that. We will never match that because that is an unsustainable game. And it, it felt like I just said the same thing in every single time out because I just had to trust that over time, um, the luck would even out and our superior material knowledge would win out. And it did to a large extent of the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always random, you know, lucky, unlucky events that happen. But generally speaking, those with the greater material knowledge and the greater discipline will win. Um, One of the things I was fond of saying when I was uh, uh, coaching teams that were either the internationals team or at the district level, I was coaching teams that had a good chance of doing well. Like there were people enough, there were quizzers enough in a team that were taking memorization and prep work seriously enough where it made being competitive, uh, you know, a real possibility. One of the things I was fond of saying was that we should practice the way we want to quiz. Like we want to, we want to practice the way that you want to perform. So if, you know, and I would, I would say this when I would be working with a team and I would look up and I would see, you know, a couple of people, half the team, whatever, just kind of a little bit more relaxed, you know, not taking it as seriously and so forth. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a practice. I get that you're tired. Um, These things happen. But if you practice being casual about your practice quiz, when you go into your actual quiz, you have to be in a different mindset. You have to change your mindset, you change your body, your physicality, your mental focus, everything kind of shifts into that stronger world. You can make that shift, but it's a lot easier if you don't have to shift at all. It's a lot easier if you simply do in your performance what you did in practice. So you should, as a result, therefore, making your life easier a little bit in performance, if in your practice, you are taking it with the same level, level level of energy, focus, determination, drive, and so forth. And then if you need a break because you're wiped out, because I mean, that's the thing. If you're, if you're practicing, you are going at the, if you're practicing the way that you're going to perform and you're performing at the, you know, an optimum level, you will get worn out with your practices. Like if you're not getting exhausted from practice, then you're not practicing right. Right. And so like, you know, you, you want to do, you know, two, three, four back-to-back quizzes, get worn out and then take a break. Right. This is, this is, this is normal. Uh, so like, you know, if you're not getting worn out, maybe it's a sign that you're not devoting the level of energy and focus that you should. Totally. And I would also just push the teams through more and more practice quizzes because internationals is incredibly draining, right? And so 
there will be times where we've already quizzed 10 times and it's 1130 or 1230 and everyone's super hungry. And I was like, this exact scenario will happen. You will have another prelim and some teams will bomb and score a one. And if you're a team that that scores at least a seven, like those are the, the better teams. And so I'd say like often it comes down to like, can you summon superior focus when your your body and brain do not want to? Right. Mm hmm. So I think that was an important aspect of practice as well. And going back to like not having quiz outs, because to me, like if you're practicing with a team of five, like that's pretty different from having a quiz of 12 people. And so I wanted my best quizzers continually quizzing so that quizzers three, four, and five never got to get questions in an artificially easy scenario that will never happen at internationals. Like, to me, that's not, like, that's providing the wrong kind of feedback. I want you to know, like, if you're at a level where you can't win a jump and get it right, I want you to know that on day one. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and this is the thing, we're, we're talking about internationals prep versus, say, district prep. And I would do things a little bit different at district prep. Uh, but at inter internationals prep, I mean, I 100% agree. Exactly. Because at the district level, it is highly, highly motivational to get a single question right, especially for your like least experienced quizzers. And so you want to like artificially create the scenario where they get the feedback loop, where they want to like put more and more time into it. But you're often playing a – well, you are playing a very different game with your internationals team, right? It's people that have self-selected into like I have the motivation level to put a lot of time into this already. But if the current preparation level – isn't there. I don't want that to be hidden. Yeah, totally agreed. What else? I mean, I think what you said about like you had you had teams where you knew not everyone knew the material and you had the coaches who could like do the like help with quoting and stuff like that. I think that, that is I, I think I was generally lucky to have teams that knew the material really, really well. But I will readily acknowledge that if the team doesn't know the material great, then it's not going to be a super beneficial practice to have everyone target those optimal speeds and probably get 20% accuracy. Like that's, that's not a good practice either. And so if that was the scenario and if I had the coaching, um, resources, I probably would have done something different. Yeah. Well, so far I haven't disagreed with you very much. What else? Um, I did have a thought, but it's gone. Oh, syllable prep. That's it. It's in the notes. Um, so this was a huge thing that, I mean, I guess, it's secret might be secret sauce to someone, but um, to me, like there is a precise syllable speed that you should be wanting to hit, and it shouldn't change a lot. You know, maybe the speeds on question one, hundred interrogative, is going to be different than question twenty slightly, um, but in general, you're trying to hit a speed. But also, the speed, the precision of the speed matters. Like, there's a big difference between two syllables and two and a quarter syllables. There's a massive difference between jumping on a W and not jumping on a W. And so we would drill and drill and drill those things. And I would tell the, the quizzers, we're going to jump on two syllables. And then I would just like read random questions from random phrases from the material that they were not required to answer. Um, but just because I wanted them to get into the feel of what is two syllables. And then I would say three, and then four, and then five, and then one, and then two and a half, and then a half, and then one and a quarter. And I just wanted to, because like you, this is why I think timing is so important to a quiz master to be consistent, is because the quizzers kind of get this feel, because you're you can't like like jumping at one and a quarter syllables versus one and a half syllables is not something that you 
can like put your hands around and just make happen like you have a measuring tape it's this very big feel thing right um and this is also why i would switch out quiz masters because quiz masters are different and you have to be able to adapt to them but i would just drill the team so that they had this really innate feel of what is two and a quarter syllables what is three and a quarter syllables and then we also did a similar thing for W's. And some quizzers are very, very talented. And when they see a W coming, they jump a half syllable or a syllable, one syllable slower. And then there are other quizzers who are less talented. And I fall into this camp where all you can do is sit on the W and just like purely not jump. And that was the best I could do. Because if I summoned a slower speed, it would probably be two or three syllables slower than normal and I wouldn't win any jumps. And so the best I could try to do is don't jump on the W's. But some of their quizzers are very talented and they would just jump about a syllable slower on W's, which is perfect. Um, but like we drilled that. And um, I think that those things are very useful because at the district level, even very strong districts, the best quizzers can jump on recognition some of the time. But even when they don't have to like when they can't jump on recognition, they still might be jumping at a fairly slow, slow syllable speed. So maybe four syllables on an interrogative or something, which if you jump on three and three quarters or four and a quarter versus four, it's not a very big deal. Um, but one versus one and a half is a massive deal um, to, to the expected accuracy that you will get. Uh, and so I just found it so useful for these quizzers to just drill on jump at this cadence, jump at this cadence, jump at this cadence. And if I said two syllables and I kept hitting it, then I would start switching it up, right? But if I'm getting, if I'm saying two, 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 and they're jumping at one, three, two and a half, then I know we have to keep going over and over again until they can be precise. Yeah, totally agreed. Because to me, like, it's all just this big numbers game. Like, assuming five teams that know the material well, if one team can jump more precisely at the optimal speed, then they're just going to do better, right? Um, even, and and that's if, I mean, you could even know the material less well, but if you're smarter about jumping, like, I mean, I'm not going to name, name names, but like, there are teams who know the material great, but jump at like really imprudent speeds and kind of waste a lot of their expected scoring, right? And it's like, it, it might seem counterintuitive, but you can you can win probably 25% fewer jumps and still score way more. Um, and that's actually one of my things I wanted to dive into is try to decide, try to assign a complete value to an error because I think the penalty of an error is um, very little of it is any negative points that you get from that error. I think the biggest penalty is the lost opportunity to score on the next question. And I, like, how would you assign a value to a jump, Griffin? Would you take, like, the total average scoring in a quiz and divide it by the average number of questions asked? Or would you do it, like, per like per team? Because teams are differently strength, strengthed. It's a, well, it's a very complex question because I think there's you're, – you're absolutely right. There's the, – the loss of a single question is not the loss of that question. It's not the negative points, although those do matter a little bit. It's the fact that you've potentially, you've lost out on a potential 40 points, right? The, the question that you're erring on and the, and the subsequent question, right? Mm -hmm. Potentially even, you know, a third one, right? So like, you know, uh, let's say you err on question three, four is an error and five is a bonus. Like you've lost out on 60 points 
of potential scoring, right? And if you're talking about, you know, internationals level, you know, quizzing, 60 points is a lot of points, right? That's a, that's a huge score difference. Um, and that's coming from one error, right? So you definitely want to have your error rate managed and controlled, right? But you don't want to optimize your error rate to zero because, which is entirely doable, right? You can, you can optimize your error rate to zero, but the problem is you'll never win enough jumps to, to, to win a quiz. Uh, you know, you might have the highest accuracy around, but we don't award, you know, trophies based on accuracy. We, we award it based on place. Um, so you've got to kind of dial in those things, you know, very precisely. Right. And I just remember one year I was looking at the top scoring teams in prelims and one was from Western PA and one was from Central Canada. And the Western PA team was averaging about like 11 or 12 one jumps a quiz, just an incredible number of jumps won at about a 55% accuracy, I think. It might even been lower, like 53%. Mm-hmm. And they were averaging 12 to 13 points a prelim quiz. They were one of the top teams. And then Central Canada was averaging like six jumps a prelim close to 70% accuracy and had by far the highest number of correct bonuses of any team. And it could be that both of those two teams knew the material to a similar extent. And it was just two different ways to get there. And, you know, they scored almost the exact same in prelims. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, indeed. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, so I I pointed out, like, you know, if you err on three, you're potentially losing out on 60 points. You're certainly losing out on 40, but potentially 60 points, right? Right. But there's also this weird, and I have no idea how to quantify it, but there is a certain, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, there's this this energy in a quiz, uh, a flow state, a pattern practice of some kind. I don't I don't know how to describe it, but like if if you're you, I mean you've I, I don't know how to describe this other than with anecdotes, but you know, you're in a quiz, question one gets correct, question two gets correct, question three gets correct, question four gets an error right? There's this hiccup, right? Um, that happens, right? And maybe it's a minor hiccup and, and the next question is correct and you're right back and everything is fine. But there are these weird, there's this weird sort of pacing in a quiz where like, especially if you're talking about where, you know, if it's, if it's a tough error, right? So like question one is an interrogative. It gets, you know, syllable and a half gets jumped. It's correct. Question number two is a multiple answer. Two syllables jumped. Well, it's actually probably less than that question, a syllable and a half jumped. Correct. Right. Question number three is a quote, a two versus question. And the person jumps, they know the material, but they, uh, they're getting like a the wrong or something, right. They're adding a the, and they're not really realizing it. Right. And they're getting these two uh, correct. It goes for the 30 seconds. They're, they're ultimately counted incorrect. There's this, it's, it's almost like you've taken the quiz off the main road of the highway for a second and you have to kind of go through some back roads of a couple of questions before the quiz gets back on the highway again. And I don't know, does that make any sense? Do you agree, disagree? How would you describe that differently? So I have weirdly conflicting views because there have been a million statistical papers that have conclusively shown that um, the hot hand or um, momentum doesn't exist like in sports, like there's, there's no, nothing about a, a prior event that changes the probability of, um, a future event, um, and future independent event, right? Like a strike on, um, the first pitch of a, 
um, at bat in baseball changes what's going to happen in the rest of the at bat. Um, but independent events, um, their probability is not changed. But it still seems to me that like like with humans, your mental state is going to impact your performance. And some people just deal with adversity or um, conflict or or success differently than other people, which to me will impact their future events. And maybe this happens to a greater extent with non-adults or kids, right? Um, and so I think there is something to be said for, like, if a quiz just starts going with a lot of errors, it seems like it can cascade across all the teams. Now, I haven't, like, gone back through quizzes and and seen if among quizzes with more error, with a certain number of errors in the first five questions, like, is the accuracy lower for the rest of the quiz, right? Right, then right. I haven't gone and done that. But it does seem like there is something to be said for that flow being killed by an error, which is why, to me, the biggest value of a protest is like a signal to your team that the coach is backing them up. And the biggest negative to a protest is that the entire mood and flow of the room is killed. So the the biggest pro and the biggest con have nothing to do with the points of the question in question. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, how do you, how do you go about quantifying that? I don't even know if it's possible, but there is, there is this sort of like, you know, the air gets let out of the room for a moment, right? Um, but the thing is, you cannot, cannot, cannot optimize for no airing because you won't win, right? Um, so in a sense, you have to train yourself to tr uh, treat every new question that you're el eligible to jump on as an independent event, which is very difficult to do. But like, the more you can do that, the better you're going to be. Like, the other, the other thing kind of, th we're jumping around topics here a little bit, but like train your, if you're a coach, train your internationals team to not get faster when they are competing against a faster jumping team, right? Your optimal jump speed is your optimal jump speed. And because some other team comes in there and is faster than what you experienced in a previous quiz, this does not change your optimum jump speed, right? Um, if a quiz, if a, if a team goes in there and is jumping a lot slower than you expect, I don't think that changes your optimum speed either, right? Like, like, I think you want to dial in your optimum speed, but I don't know, uh, Scott, do you disagree with that? I don't. So, um, I don't want this single anecdote to prove my point, but I think it demonstrates my point. Is that a correct way to, to phrase sure, it? Sure, sure, sure. Um, but there was a year where after prelims, PNW was ninth. And if you are ninth after 12 prelims, that means you are in quiz, I think that's Z. Um, and you are in quiz Z of XYZs with the 10th place team, which is maximum drama and anxiety. So we were 12 points up on uh, 10th place, which is a healthy lead. Well, I think that 10th place team in quiz Z, I believe they won the first five jumps and got a fourth person bonus and got them all right, which would be a hundred and so 140. So I think, I think they had 140 points, um, through question five of quiz Z and were base basic were one point ahead of us 
overall. So like in us after 12 prelims, we had this nice healthy lead. And after five questions, it was gone. And we were now de facto 10th. And I remember sitting in a, I think I did call timeout. And I told the team, I was like, they just went out at imprudent speeds and happened to get stuff that was unique. And they are a good team. So they converted on the stuff that happened to be unique at their imprudent speeds. And I said, we can do whatever we want at this point. You can say like, we just want to match that speed and hope luck smiles on it, on us. Or we can just do what we've done for our 12 prelims and hope that the luck starts to frown on them. And we decided to stick it out. And I think by the end of the quiz, we had 140 or 150 and that team had like 70 or 50 or something. Right, <laughs> um, right. And it was, it was just like, to me, it was the perfect microcosm of what you want to have happen to demonstrate a superior strategy. It doesn't always happen that way, but I don't think that that means that the strategy is bad. But I told the team, I was like, this could totally not go our way. Like, there, there's going to be about 17 more questions, which is a small number of questions, and it just might not go our way. Like, would you be fine with that if we stick to our guns and it just doesn't happen? They were like, yeah. And so we we didn't match the speed, um, but pretty quickly that team started airing and we started getting toss-ups correct at the speed we had been doing all of prelims. Um, and I don't even remember what your question was. Well, it, it's related to that. I'll throw out a, sep- a, a secondary question um, just because I'm thinking of it and I think it's interesting. So there are teams that are highly disciplined um, on their jump speed. Um, and I think those are the superior teams. Um, there are other teams that are, you know, extraordinarily well uh, 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 memorized teams, cap- very capable teams, but are not as disciplined on their jump speed, right? So they they definitely are influenced by the tone and the speed of what's going on within a particular quiz, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say you are coaching a highly disciplined team, but it's not just regularly highly disciplined. Like, let's say you've targeted two syllables or whatever it happens to be. Let's say you've targeted two syllables as your target, right? And your team is highly disciplined. But on top of that, they are also highly capable of adjusting their target, right? So you can say, like, normally we target two, but if I say 1.5, they can get 1.5. If I say 2.5, they can get 2.5, right? Do you consider it a good idea in general, right? Or a bad idea? So like if you're if you're coaching this this team, this highly capable, highly precise team, and you're coaching them against a team that is also highly precise on their jumping, then this is not this is sort of this question is moot, right? You should just go for whatever your target is. But let's say you are competing against a team that you have noticed in previous quizzes is susceptible to influence, right? Do you advise your team to adjust their target for the first, say, six or eight questions of a quiz to psych out the other team and then go back to your target? Or do you say, no, stick with your target? Um, so it, it would be a pretty rare team who can really just change their speeds like that. I find that it's, it's hard enough to be that precise you know if you're trying to hit um two syllables exactly like that's hard enough um and so i i would definitely be pretty hesitant to instruct the team to do that just for us 
um, a potentially small gain that is also potentially out of our, it is out of our control, right? But that doesn't mean that there might be select situations that I would attempt to go to team like that, right? So if there's a team that um, I see will just run that jump speed up if it gets going fast early in a quiz, um, and then let's say maybe that team has an amazing chapter reference quizzer or something, I might tell one of our quizzers, like, just waste this chat. Like, the first chapter reference question that you have come up, just jump on half a syllable. And it's like, I know that they're well-prepared, my team. So, like, our chances of getting it right are not zero. You know, they might be 25% or something. But um, it might have a large negative mental impact on that other team and also waste um, the highest expected points question that they're going to get because – their best quizzer is a CR specialist, right? So there would absolutely be times where I would do something strategic like that. Right. I mean, I think in when questions are constrained, um, I think it is a severely underutilized strategy to um, prevent the other team's best quizzer from getting their favorite type. I think that that is a severely underutilized strategy. Yeah, I totally agree. And and what I'm talking about is more general case. So, I mean, I totally, totally agree with the idea of like, based on the question type, you might want to go faster um, in a very specific scenario, given the right, you know, situation. I'm thinking more in a general case where it's like, um, you know, and of course, there is no such thing as a general case. Every quiz is unique. But, you know, you're going through... The, the idea of trying to psych out a team in the first, you know, five to six questions of a quiz or something like that. I've generally found from my perspective that this works at a district level can sometimes happen at an invitational level, like an interdistrict level, like a Great West level, but almost never once you're in the, 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 the final nine bracket, like, like you might be able to get, you know, might be able to do something like this at like a Great West in, in a prelim quiz, if you know what you're doing and your team is, is particularly capable, but it's very tricky, right? And at internationals in general, it like, I've, I've never seen it work. Like, I think it's, I think it's generally always a good idea to try to hit your targets, unless you're talking about a specific type of question that your example includes. And that's where I would break the rule and say like, okay, yeah, you want to go after this one, but it's not because you're trying to psych out the team. You're, you're actually trying to remove a specialty from that team. That's an entirely different equation. Right. So I think in general, strategically, if you can, if you can do take an action that forces another team into a, a suboptimal jumping speed, you should do it. But I think, um, it's pretty difficult to do that without, um, negatively impacting your own team by like loss of focus or imprecision or other things. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, like if you can do, because I think a great example in, from the world of baseball is bunting. So for decades or longer, bunting was totally a thing. And then at some point someone did data analysis and was like, Hey, we shouldn't just be giving the other team a free out. Like that's a bad idea. (laughs) And so then like, the rate of bunting went way down. But then at some point someone was like, so I know that we shouldn't just give the other team a free out, but if we bunt once in a blue moon, that then causes the defense to slightly move suboptimally for the next thousand plays or 50 innings or something, then it might be worth it. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about here. Like 
it's generally not going to be worth it to willingly lower our expected accuracy from, say, 55 to 25. But if it has a, a negative impact on on other teams to the point that it's worth it, like it can be a smart move. Right. Yeah. And of course, I don't have any data to back this up. And it would be interesting to try to, you know, do a thought experiment to figure out what data could exist to either confirm or deny this. But I would think at internationals, you basically aren't. I think the pain that you cause yourself by pre-jumping is not worth the gain in messing up the pattern of, of another team. Like, I think all the teams have enough discipline to be able to at least go back to home base, if that makes any sense. Right. I think you would have had to witness something pretty egregious from uh, egregious isn't the right word, something pretty glaring that another team is susceptible to. Right. 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 Significant enough. And I would argue if you did encounter that, if you if you witnessed something that that was significant enough to cause you to think that way about that particular team, it's very likely that that's that team is probably not a top nine team anyway. Most likely. Right. Like, yeah, you, usually your top six teams and as well as your bottom six teams, they just do what they're going to do. And they, they're not influenced by whatever is happening around them. But you might find some teams kind of in that that mid midfield that might be more susceptible to being influenced. Um, but usually it's it's work enough to worry about your own self <laughs> at internationals. Right, right. Yeah, um, indeed. But, but that sort of stuff thing is funny because we've had long discussion. One of our teams had long discussions about the value of question number one. And we decided that we think there is um, a slightly larger value ascribed to question number one. And so we would jump a little faster um, to try to capitalize on question one. Um, so I guess we knowingly lowered our expected accuracy, but we um, we wanted ourselves to hold the outcome of question one as much as possible because I think we also trusted our ability to compartmentalize an error. Because um, I think one thing you said is team like the ability to completely compartmentalize what you're doing and only focus on the next question is a huge value. And I think it's really, really hard to do. Um, there are so many quiz, like internationals especially, because the top end team scores are so much lower than in the district. You know, it's it's 180 at internationals is an incredible score, um, and most often teams are grouped in that 70 to 110 range. And so it's very common for you to be sitting on question 14, and the teams are at 60, 70, and 50. And it could be like a team that will go on to place third and a team that will go on to place 15th. <laughs> You know, right. but it just seems like there's almost nothing between them. And so it, I think it's totally the teams that have the better process and are more consistent and then just can compartmentalize better, um, often zoom ahead right right at the end of quizzes. And that's something that's always been very interesting to me because, you know, I had my target number of points that I wanted the team to average. And so I'm sitting in a quiz on question 14 and we have 40 and I'm like, well, man, we're sure not there. But I, I learned, like, you have to be more patient than that, which is so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, should we hit cadence of prep? Yeah, let's talk about that in peaking. Um, so this is a hard one, and especially when we go back to my first belief, which is you can't make the quizzers study. Um, but I also, I try to tailor my language and my feedback to not be super harsh and pointed early in our practice schedule. So usually... PNW is, is done with the district right around the beginning of B 
beginning to the middle of May, and we usually weren't having our first practice until like the end of May, which leaves you in normal times would leave you time for about three to five practices um, before the July internationals, right? Which is typically typically second or third week of July. Um, and so like at that first practice, if the team is not yet there, I, I wouldn't be super harsh, you know, like I would, I would, I would note it and I would say something, but it wasn't draconian, you know, but then as we marched on, I was more and more clear about where I think the team stood in relation to, um, their goal and the preparation, the preparation level required to get to that goal. Right. Um, and I, I just tried to. Because I think, I mean, it really is a marathon, and especially for a first-time quizzer to internationals, oftentimes they're super jazzed and motivated about qualifying, and they can go out really, really, really fast in those first couple weeks, and maybe even dominate that first practice, and then they don't realize that June is kind of the dog days of internationals prep, and it's very easy to let the let your preparation level pull back a huge amount. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of just, it was like a subtle ramp up in my mind and I would tailor my feedback, um, and language so that I could hopefully have the team peaking when it came time to July. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I don't really, I don't know that I have much to add. Um, yeah, all those things definitely need to be uh, taken into consideration. So what else about international prep? We've already talked about specializing in team construction and other like in quiz strategy. I think it's really important to factor in or factor in. I think it's really important to plan in periods of downtime and relaxing fun time. Like, like as a coach, get your quizzers to stop thinking about quizzing when, when they're down. Right. Uh, it's hard to do. Right. Um, but like plan in those times. Uh, if you can, like I've seen teams where, you know, it's it's a lunch break and the coach will be like, OK, grab your lunch and then we're going to start quoting with each other. I'm like, well, OK, I I guess maybe your team is at a spot where that would be valuable, but I don't think so. I think that actually drains energy more. I think you want to be very intentional about almost forcing a mental disconnect from quizzing, get your quizzers to be able to, you know, recuperate and learn what causes your quizzers to recuperate better. Like, so, so for some, you know, just not thinking at all, like almost being in a meditative state, you know, just kind of sitting outside, you know, in the shade, listening to the, you know, the wind or something like that. For some quizzers that really, really helps them just sort of regain their energy for other quizzers. It's like, let me pull out the DS and play a, a video game or something. And that is a way to energize them, uh, you know, back up others. It's more like, I want to go socialize. If I can socialize for half an hour, like that's, that's a mental disconnect, you know, for somebody, for me, that would be the opposite. Like for me, socializing is almost like a draining experience, um, kind of stuff. So figure out what those things are and then be intentional. And so, you know, as a quizzer, find out how to manage your own energy. How do you restore your energy, right? You can manage your energy during a quiz. That's incredibly important, but then, and, and across the meet as well. But if you can find ways of, you know, restoring your energy, uh, you know, that becomes a superpower, uh, especially towards the latter, you know, quizzes of a, of a meet. Absolutely. So, I mean, I know that there have been coaches that would say like, once we get to internationals, like no coffee <laughs> or like no right. things. And to me, I was like, well, the last thing I want to do if a quizzer um, consistently drinks coffee is to then say, don't do it when 
we need to start performing. That seemed seemed weird to me. But I would also like, just like I, I said, how much do you want to prepare like as a collective thing to the five of them, I would tr- like treat every level of preparation like that. So I would tell them, when we get to internationals, if you want to try to win first, you need to be optimizing what you eat and drink and your sleep. Now, I am not going to have rules about no soda for lunch or um, you have to be like going to sleep by this time other than the normal like meat curfew, right? Like I wasn't right. going to have these rules, but I was like, if you want to maximize your your chances of achieving a goal that you collectively want, this is ways that you can optimize it. And so like there were totally times where the lunch would be burgers and fries and you look around and everyone's eating burgers and fries and soda. And our team just like wanted to try to optimize a little more and they had lots of veggies and water in addition to some others, you know? And I was like, right. I wanted it to be their decision because of something they wanted to achieve together. Um, but similarly, like downtime, like mar- like internationals is a marathon, like the, the specific meet over three or four days. And so when we practiced, like we would practice hard, but then like we have food, we play video games, we watch movies or whatever, because at internationals, when you have that big downtime between quizzes, um, you, you want to have team members that you can rely on and that will help you out if you've had a bad quiz. And um, you kind of foster that through the whole practice. And so after every single prelim or every quiz, we would have a debrief that was, you know, max of 10 minutes, but usually just a couple. And then I would say you need to be in this room by this time, like maybe the quiz before, if we haven't seen that quiz master yet, but then it was go do whatever you want. Right. (laughs) There was no like brush up on your lists or it was like, however you need to manage your time. Because in general, the quizzers that you have on an international team are at least 15 or 16 (laughs) and they're not these immature kids. Like they have an ability to know what works for them. And so I wanted them to go and do that. Yeah, absolutely. but But at the same time, like the year that we won, a massive advantage was that we won quiz D, which happens at like 1130 and then finals is at 730. And so like the value of like not having (laughs) to worry about anything for that long and like take a nap or whatever to me is invaluable. Whereas other teams, um, you pick up with quiz, I think D was the last one before lunch. So quiz E they picked up with after lunch. And so it's the other eight teams in semifinals are just grinding like like through lunch they're just thinking about how they've done in a b or c right and Mm -hmm. or d and then they just have to grind through two to three hours more of quizzing between lunch and dinner and to me it was just the craziest energy drain now obviously go win quiz d is not just a strategy that you can employ at will (laughs) but for the the one team that does it it's a crazy crazy advantage because of how um energy draining the additional quizzes and just thinking about quizzing are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and on that, we are running out of time for episode 93, so we should probably close it there. I want to remind everybody, of course, uh, if you have any questions or really especially if you have any disagreements with anything that we've said on this or any uh, past or even future uh, podcast episode, uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. We would love to hear from you. Uh, We would especially love to hear contrarian ideas or additional ideas that we haven't talked about. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And you can also chat with us in kind of pseudo almost real time on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum in the Inside Quizzing uh, channel. And with that all said, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. And thanks to all of our listeners. 